Welcome everyone to episode 98 of the 25 Live, Jim Bernica. My name is Neil McMillan and I have the honor to guest host this episode while Jim enjoys a well-deserved vacation with his lovely wife, Lauren, and their two boys. Building off of episode 97, our guest today is Dr. Jamie DeWitt. Dr. DeWitt is an associate professor in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology of the Brody School of Medicine in East Carolina University and an adjunct associate professor in toxicology program of the Department of Biological Sciences at North Carolina State University. She served as an external reviewer for the EPA's health effect assessment of PFOA and PFOS, the U.S. National Toxicology Program's Immune Effects Assessment of PFOA and PFOS, the U.S. Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry toxico Toxicological Profile for PFASs, and was a member of IARC's working group for the assessment of the carcinogenicity of PFOA, and her laboratory assesses the immunotoxicity of emerging PFAS that have been designed to replace those that have been phased out of production. Um, welcome, Dr. DeWitt. That was a, a mouthful. It was hard for me to articulate uh, your CV, so I can only imagine all the work that's gone in, um, you know, to your studies and especially your focus on PFAS chemicals. Well, thank you for having me. I should also add that I, as of July 1st, I am now a full professor, so I've advanced in my career to the point of old. Well, Congratulations, that, that's amazing news. And um, you know, thank you so much um, for dedicating some more time uh, to some of these follow-up questions. Um, we in the fire service owe you a great debt and, and others like you that have uh, been able to help educate firefighters on the topic of PFAS. Um, so to start off, um, the topic of PFAS has been touched on before and uh, you in particular have spoken on the subject many times, uh, but it still seems that the risk of PFAS exposures is still not widely known as a hazard similar to hazards such as asbestos, lead and PCBs. Uh, what do you think this is? Well, there are probably several different reasons, and many of these are related to discovery of chemicals in the environment. We often call chemicals for which we don't have a lot of information emerging chemicals, and we start to study them when we see their presence in the environment, in water, in air, and food. And so sometimes it takes a while for toxicological research to catch up with the environmental research being done by analytical chemists. And then once the toxicological research is done, then epidemiological research is done and more toxicological research is done. And so sometimes it can take a while to get information out to the general public. And sometimes this is the fault of scientists because we often communicate with one another through our scientific papers in journals that most people probably aren't going to browse at their local libraries. And so it's important that we as scientists share our data with, with just other scientists and with people from the general public so that they become aware of the work that we're doing and the concerns that we have about chemicals that could be in their drinking water or in their homes or in their workplaces. Hey, excellent. Um, PFAS has, has been proliferated in, in the environment, as you've explained previously, um, and the exposure hazard for you know, you know, many people um, is, uh, I guess, uh, something of a concern, whereas consumers and people that drink water should uh, 
you know, have, uh, you know, take issue with these chemicals being in use still in many products. But why do you think firefighters in particular should be concerned about PFAS? Well, when we think about environmental chemicals, we not only think about how people from the general public get exposed, but we also have to think about those who work with the chemicals, either through manufacturer or through very specific or heavy uses. Uh, firefighters uh, have long used aqueous film forming foams that were originally, I think, developed to meet military specs for putting out certain types of fires. And so these are used in copious amounts. They're used in training exercises as well as, well as in, in real events. And so there's a lot of exposure through the use of aqueous film forming foams. I've, I've never been in a situation where I've observed their use, but I've seen videos and they're sprayed everywhere. So it's almost impossible to um, avoid exposure if you're spraying something with foam. I've also heard um, from firefighters that they've been told by some safety officers that the foams are not any worse than bubble bath. So don't worry about it. Don't worry if you get it on your skin or if you accidentally ingest or inhale a little bit of it, it's, it's not a problem. But we also know that firefighters can get exposed to PFAS through more than just foam. We know that PFAS are used in turnout gear. And we now know through the work of Dr. Graham Keasley that those PFAS can migrate to other layers of turnout gear. And some of those layers might be next to skin. We also know that PFAS can be used in things like climbing rope. And I understand that rope is in ample supply in many firehouses for various purposes. Uh, PFAS also are used in, in food packaging. So if you run out to grab a burger, uh, there may be PFAS in the food packaging. So, or you might also live in an area where PFAS contaminates drinking water. So if you're a firefighter living in a contaminated area, your contaminated area, you're exposed through your workplace and potentially even through your home environment. So it's almost impossible to avoid exposure. Okay. Um, as a firefighter, I know when I mentioned certain things like dioxins, benzene, toluenes, we know those substances are present in our environment or in the products of combustion. You know, we kind of take a step back. Um, but is it fair to say that PFAS could be considered more concerning than some of those, not only because of their biopersistence uh, in, in humans, but also because they're linked to a wider array of diseases and illnesses as compared to many of those IR listed chemicals? Yes, that's, that's a good assessment and, and a good way of comparing uh, PFAS to date are among the most long-lived environmental chemicals that scientists have encountered. Uh, dioxins and polychlorinated biphenyls, for example, are known to degrade in soil after about 30 or 40 years. Something like benzene degrades very quickly in soil in days or weeks or even months. Uh, but something like PFAS, to our knowledge, does not degrade in in 30 years or 50 years or even 100 years, it might take several hundreds of years for PFAS to naturally degrade in the environment. Certainly we can come up with um, ways of forcing its degradation, but that may be somewhat costly. And how do you degrade PFAS that contaminate sediment in a river? We can't figure that out for polychlorinated biphenyls, so how can we figure it out for PFAS? Um, but you also hit on a very 
uh, important consideration regarding toxicity. PFAS seem to impact multiple cells, tissues, and organ systems. The, the fancy phrase for that is that we call them multi-system toxicants. So they can impact numerous sites in the body. Benzene, for example, we know is very potent with respect to the bone marrow and immune cells in the bone marrow. As a solvent, we also know it can have impacts on the brain and some impacts on the liver. PFAS also seem to be able to circulate throughout the body and impact numerous tissues to a greater extent than these other compounds that you mentioned. Okay, that's it's frightening. <laughs> um, terrible. Um, but you know what, that, that kind of leads me into, you know, a question with respect to some of the, Ill, the specific illnesses that firefighters seem to be disproportionately afflicted with. Um, on a whole, my understanding is that usually we display a healthy worker effect to many diseases that are related to lifestyle, um, or can be, I guess, minimized through lifestyle. Um, but conversely, it seems like, you know, firefighters are at increased risk of metabolic and cardiovascular uh, diseases. Um, traditionally, I know as an advocate for, for sick and injured firefighters, we've attributed, um, you know, this uh, to, you know, the shift work, sleep deprivation, you know, chronic exposure to CO gas, um, and the sudden physical and psychological stresses that firefighters, um, you know, endure uh, in the course of their duties. Um, but do you think there could be something to maybe the stacked or cocktail effect, um, you know, with firefighters when it comes to metabolic and cardiac conditions, uh, when we throw in some of these PFASs that may be linked to some of those conditions as well? So a really interesting paper came out in, I think, 2017, and it was it was a paper by a group of scientists, a really huge group of scientists who looked at data on chronic diseases across the globe and the likely sources of, of, of causation behind those chronic diseases. And they determined from the data that each year, 9 million people die prematurely from exposure to environmental pollutants that are behind these chronic diseases. And more often than not, the people who were affected are people who live in high risk areas um, with higher loads of pollution, uh, lower access to affordable health care and healthful food. And so the people who are most susceptible carry the highest burden of disease from environmental pollutants. And so let's shift and, and focus on firefighters. You mentioned a whole host of stressors that firefighters have to deal with. You, you've got the stress of the job combined with shift work, combined with being in hazardous situations on a routine basis. Those all make the body more susceptible to effects of other stressors that include environmental and workplace contaminants. And so when you combine all of those stressors together, I'm surprised that firefighters are as healthy as they are. And part of that probably comes from having to take very good care of yourself so that you're able to perform the duties of, of your position. Um, I think you mentioned the healthy worker effect, and, and that is an effect that epidemiologists see when they study certain populations where they might see decreases in death, for example, from certain diseases. And that's 
because people in certain occupations have access to annual healthcare exams and preventative medicine that allow them to start to manage those diseases um, for so that they can survive for a longer period of time with those diseases compared to somebody who doesn't have access to that type of care. So, you know, making a long story short, stressors are are going to increase people's susceptibility to agents that can induce chronic diseases. Um, we also know that PFAS can have effects on our body's metabolic pathways. One of the questions I'm trying to address in my laboratory is how metabolic pathways in the immune system are affected by PFAS exposure. So, you know, you've hit on some very important considerations. And so, how can you reduce stressors to reduce your likelihood of illness? Well, phasing out hazardous chemicals that are not essential would be one very important step in reducing that workplace stress. I think that's a, that's a great point. And thank you, Dr. DeWitt, because yeah, if there's things out there that could possibly add to you know, the toxic burden, as you, as you mentioned, and they're unnecessary and we have the ability to phase those out, um, I think it's kind of incumbent on us to do that. So, so that's great. And you also, I know your expertise in the immune system is, is, is pretty deep. So I'm, I'm going to delve a little bit further there, if it's all right. Um, uh, by helping firefighters go through, you know, their journey to survivorship when they are diagnosed with cancer, um, there's all sorts of different treatment modalities that they, that their physicians, um, you know, put into place to help uh, support them. Um, and I see more and more uh, the use of uh, immunotherapy uh, during this um, this journey. Um, and I know just through, you know, again, my, my lay understanding of this is that the immune system plays a huge part in both preventing cancer from developing in humans um, and then also setting us up for, for greater success when undergoing treatment. Um, I've read some articles, uh, recent ones, relating um, uh, immunosuppression. Um, from ex high exposures to PFAS chemicals and knowing that firefighters are exposed to PFASs, you know, at a higher rate um, or higher concentration than many in the general public, how do you see those interactions? And do you think we're, we're, we have like the deck stacked against us because of that? So in 2016, the United States National Toxicology Program, which is a uh, a program affiliated with the National Institutes of Environmental Health Sciences published a systematic review of the immune effects of PFOA and PFOS. And their conclusion was that these two PFAS are presumed to be immune hazards in humans. And this was based on both epidemiological findings as well as toxicological findings. And the, the, the driving finding was the ability of the immune system uh, or the ability of PFAS to suppress the immune system and to specifically suppress the immune system's ability to make appropriate responses to vaccines. But in the world of immunotoxicity, when we see suppression of that specific arm of the immune system, we understand that other parts of the immune system are likely also suppressed. And so seeing suppression in one part of the immune system indicates that there's multiple failures occurring within the immune system. 
another piece of evidence that the National Toxicology Program used to support their conclusion was evidence in experimental animals that natural killer cell cytotoxicity was suppressed. So what does that mean? Well, a natural killer cell is part of your innate immune system, and they have a really great ability to find and kill or be cytotoxic to cells that mutate and have the potential to become cancer. When we study them in the laboratory, we actually take natural killer cells um, from experimental models and pair them with cancer cells that, and in our, our laboratory, we, we put the cancer cells in uh, a chemical that makes them take up a green dye. And so when the natural killer cells that we pair them with see the cancer cells, they, they bust them open and that green dye comes out. And so we can measure how well the natural killer cells are killing these cancer cells. It's actually a really cool assay. And we use an instrument called a flow cytometer to measure the natural killer cell cytotoxicity. But when you see suppression in the ability of natural killer cells to do their job, that increases the risk for cancers because mutated cells don't have as many police officers chasing them down and, and capturing them and eliminating them. So multiple forms of immune suppression have been observed in people exposed to PFAS and in experimental animals exposed to individual PFAS in the lab. All of this combined then means that if you're somebody who is highly exposed to PFAS, there's an increased risk that your immune system isn't protecting you as well as it should. Does it mean that you're gonna get sick? Does it mean that you're gonna get cancer? Well, we can't definitively say that, but we do know that the risk is there and that that risk can increase, especially over time as you age and especially as your exposures may continue. Now, put yourself in the case of a frontline worker, such as a firefighter, who might be responding to calls of people who are sick or injured. If you have a suppressed immune system and you're going to treat somebody who's got COVID, for example, you're at increased risk from getting a COVID infection. So it's very important that those who have high levels of exposure really take extra efforts to protect themselves, especially as we continue to try to fight this pandemic. Pandemic. I would also suggest that people get vaccinated. Even if your immune system is suppressed, that vaccine is still going to give your immune system an extra boost that it needs to fight off a pathogen, you know, sort of like giving your immune system a big hammer versus a little hammer. You know, I'd rather have a little hammer than no hammer at all. Um, so somebody with a normally functioning immune system will have a big hammer when they get vaccinated. Um, somebody with an immune system that might be suppressed will only have, will have a smaller hammer, but at least they have a hammer. Um, so it, it, it helps. And, and I, would, I would encourage you know, anybody who has high concentrations of PFAS in their body or in the environment around them to take all precautions to ensure that they don't get exposed to COVID or the flu or um, another in, infectious agent that can really lead to mortality. Wow. Um, yeah, it made me think of so many questions. Um, but just so again, I, I understand it's kind of, it can be kind of a double whammy. Um, my, again, my impression is that 
we are not exposed to single PFASs, you know, in isolation that, you know, if we're being exposed that uh, I know through the general population, certain C8s are, are, being, are reduced in the general population, but some of those replacement PFASs are increasing. And, and it seems like some of them, you know, will help switch on oncogenes and, and others may uh, switch off tumor suppressing genes. So it, it seems to be coming at us both ways. And uh, um, it kind of reminds me as well as yesterday, I was at work and I was speaking to a bunch of firefighters, uh, you know, that operate at the airport and they used to have really, really high exposure rates to AFFF foam, fluorinated foam. Um, and they've just made a switch away from fluorinated foam. Um, and, you know, they're pretty happy that, you know, that, that type of exposure route, um, you know, is not gonna be a concern. And it was kind of this side of, communal sigh of relief, um, but no mention of those other routes, you know, where they're, they're standing there in their bunker gear, um, which we know has PFAS in it. And uh, Dr. Peasley's studies show that his, his um, grad students that helped in the lab, you know, could measure those fluorine, that fluorine off their gloves. Um, so what recommendations may, you know, would you make to firefighters um, as far as reducing some of those, those easy um, expo exposures to PFASs? Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of a tough question because we as individuals shouldn't be forced to make those decisions. Uh, you know, do I wear gear that's going to protect me or do I wear something that's less protective? We shouldn't have to make decisions about what we bring into our homes in, in terms of water, for example. Should I drink water from my tap that I know is treated for pathogens or do I get bottled water because I think that there's no PFAS in my bottled water? Um, but in terms of reducing exposure on an individual level, it depends. A lot of it depends on where you live and where you work. Uh, in the workplace, there may be very few alternatives uh, in terms of how you can reduce your exposure through gear. If there are only you know, one or two manufacturers and they all use PFAS, you don't really have much of a choice. You have to get the gear that's gonna protect you. Um, but I know that some people try to bathe after they wear their gear or shower, not bring materials home with them so that they don't expose people at home from, from gear that needs to be cleaned. Um, purchasing fast food items from chains or restaurants that you know don't use PFAS in their food packaging would be one way to reduce individual exposure. Um, trying to avoid purchasing products that you know are made with PFAS or that contain PFAS. Of course, that means being a consumer who knows what all of those are. I'm somebody who studies PFAS and I don't even think I know all of the products that contain PFAS because the list is honestly way larger than, than what I thought it was when I started working with PFAS. I mean, dental floss contains PFAS. I recently shifted dental floss brands to avoid using a brand that had detectable concentrations of PFAS in it. And I don't like the new floss as well, but I don't want PFAS in my mouth with my floss. Um, so, you know, I said it depends. It depends on where you live because we know that people who live in areas with with water contaminated by PFAS get most of their exposure through their drinking water. But if you live in an area where your water is not contaminated with PFAS, then most of your exposure is gonna come through your food or household items um, or your occupation, depending on, on where you work. So it, it really requires being educated about those sources of exposure. And it, it honestly takes a bit of work to do that. 
if you're considering new furniture or carpeting for your home, do research on, on companies that don't use PFAS in their textiles. If you need a new pair of hiking shoes, do research on which companies don't use PFAS in their hiking shoes. If you're going to buy new dental floss, do research on which companies um, don't use PFAS in their floss. That's a lot of time and effort. Um, there are some organizations that have provided some really good links to PFAS-free consumer materials. The Environmental Working Group has great information. The Green Science Policy Institute has great information. Um, the PFAS Exchange, which is through Silent Spring Institute, has great information as well. But you know, all of this requires individuals doing research to figure out how they can avoid exposure when really we as individuals shouldn't have to avoid exposure. We shouldn't be getting exposed to chemicals that don't belong in our bodies. Yeah, no, I, I completely echo your frustration with, uh, with the subject. Um, you know, and uh, I think it kind of leads us to where, you know, we're going, um, I guess, right now in the interim with respect to some of the regulations and codes that apply to firefighters like NFPA 1971. Um, and I know there's a, a TIA presently an amendment uh, to that that would, uh, you know, if the amendments adopted, it would allow for the elimination of, of a UV light degradation test that would then hopefully open the door for PFAS free alternatives to be incorporated into moisture barriers. And with the alternatives that are PFAS free for durable water repellent finishes, that would hopefully enable departments that are interested to purchase gear that is arguably PFAS free. Um, I, I know that in 2015, um, industry voluntarily switched from some legacy PFASs to what they were advertising as safer alternatives. Um, this was something that was ever reported to firefighters, uh, but those replacements are, are C6, six carbon chain PFASs and some polymers, um, which again, Dr. Peasley's, Peasley's study has shown degrade down to terminal PFASs that are known to be hazardous. Um, how important is it um, for us as, as stakeholders, as firefighters, to be involved in these processes with regulation to try to ensure that we have safer alternatives? Well, I, I think you should be as involved as you are able to be, given your time and constraints that may be placed on you by your employer. Um, the only way decision makers understand uh, concerns that that people stakeholders may have is hearing from stakeholders so at the very least those who are making decisions about what you wear and why you wear it need to know your concerns about the the chemicals used in that gear um, and in activities that you have to perform as part of your job um, I never used to know anything about firefighting. I still really don't know anything about firefighting, but now I know about AFFF and I know about turnout gear and, and some of the PFAS that are used in those materials. And I've worked with people like Diane Cotter to help to educate decision makers so that we can, we can have, uh, you know, laws, rules, regulations, standards that restrict the use of PFAS or that phase out the use of PFAS. Um, I also work with scientists to, to come up with concepts based in science that allow decision makers to 
make decisions to phase PFAS out. For example, um, Ian Cousins, a professor from uh, Stockholm University was lead author on a paper written by a group of scientists where we defined an essential use approach for phasing PFAS. Um, and you know, I wanna emphasize, and I think I emphasized this when I talked to Jim earlier, is that essential doesn't mean essential forever. Essential means use until a safe alternative becomes available. And you mentioned safe alternative and and know some of the shorter chain PFAS that are replacing what we call the longer chain or legacy PFAS, those that are uh, eight carbons or more if it's like PFOA, six carbons or more if it's like PFOS. And yes, many of the short chain compounds that have been studied by scientists do have shorter biological half-lives. So they, they stick around in a body for a shorter period of time. But the data that are emerging from toxicological studies and now even from some epidemiological studies is that these short chain PFAS can still produce toxicities similar to the long chain PFAS. So they are not without cause for concern. They are not entirely safe because safe means no potential for adverse health effects. And, and what we're seeing is that they do have the potential to produce adverse health effects. So decision makers need to know that alternative PFAS may not be safer alternatives once we have uh, a, full, a full spectrum of data um, that is toxicology, epidemiology, and environmental fate and transport data. Amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're so, as an industry, we're, we're so heavily dependent on manufacturers and, and developers of codes. Um, we know those are, those are big ships to turn around. And, and they're also, you know, big organizations that are heavily influenced by, you know, uh, you know corporations that can devote time and energy to lobby effectively. Um, so I, I can't thank you enough, Dr. DeWitt. Um, for your advocacy, um, you know, for firefighters and their health and well-being, you know, as well as the other academics that are supporting us in making some of these, uh, you know, these changes possible and hopefully lead to less instances of cancer and, and other diseases linked to, to PFAS in particular. Um, so I, again, I, I have a great amount of respect for you and, and I want to thank you for your time. Um, and I hope that uh, we get to cross paths other than in a virtual world someday. So uh, thank you very much, Dr. DeWitt. Yeah, thank you so much, Neil. And I think that your, your fellow firefighters are really fortunate to have you as an advocate for them. And this is a little bit of a cliche, but knowledge is power. And without knowledge and information, we can't make decisions to improve the quality of our life and the quality of our workplaces. So if I can give you the knowledge to improve the quality of your workplace, then I feel like I've done a little bit of my part as a, as, as a professor, as somebody dedicated to education. So I appreciate you listening.